Well, good morning. Good to be with you all today. If I didn't meet you out front as you were coming in, my name is Ken DeLage, serve as the lead pastor here. Open your Bibles, if you would, to the book of Daniel, chapter 3. And I know that we've got some folks visiting from out of town that are here with your families this weekend. If that's you, we're so glad that you would join us for worshiping the Lord this morning. And for the rest of us, we actually took a trip down to Richmond last week as a church. And so it's been a few weeks since we've been in the book of Daniel. And so for all of us, let me just give a quick, where are we in this book? So when we last left off at the end of uh, chapter 2, Daniel and his companions had narrowly escaped death. King Nebuchadnezzar had had a dream. It had freaked him out. And he had said, somebody needs to tell me what that dream was and the interpretation, or I'm going to kill all the wise men in the kingdom. And of course, nobody can do that. But God gave to Daniel the ability to say what the dream was and to interpret it. And so at the, by the end of the chapter, the, Daniel and his friends, they were all saved. And the king proclaims the greatness of God. He says to Daniel, surely your God is God of gods and Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries. And so the pagan king gives glory to the one true God. Well, something happened between the end of chapter 2 and the beginning of chapter 3, and we're not sure what it is. Perhaps there had been a number of years that passed between the end of the one chapter and the beginning of the next. We don't know the length of time, but we do know that the king had a change of mind. And he's no longer interested in drawing other people's eyes to God. He is now interested in drawing other people's eyes to himself. And he sets up a great image of himself that all would worship him. And this actually sets the scene for one of the most iconic historic stories in all of the Bible with the fiery furnace. So let's read the beginning of chapter 3. Follow along with me as I read the first seven verses for us. King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold whose height was 60 cubits and its breadth 6 cubits. He set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. Then King Nebuchadnezzar sent to gather the satraps, the prefects, and the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces to come to the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Then the satraps, the prefects, and the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces gathered for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And they stood before the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And the herald proclaimed aloud, You are commanded, O peoples, nations, and languages, that when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, you are to fall down and worship the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. Therefore, as soon as all the peoples heard the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every 
kind of music, all the peoples, nations, and languages fell down and worshipped the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. It was an image, a statue, 90 feet tall. As tall as a nine-story building and plated with gold from top to bottom. It must have been beautiful and awe-inspiring to see. At nine stories tall, it would have been taller than the tallest building in the greatest city on earth. Tallest building that we know of in ancient Babylon was the temple at the center of the city, which was seven stories tall, which was quite a of a pyramid-shaped temple. But this would have even overshadowed that. It was forged through the wealth of an empire, and it was built to unify an empire. You think about this empire, it stretched all across the ancient Near East, from the shores of Africa all the way into India. This was a massive empire, speaking multiple languages over many different people groups. Communication was slow and hard and sometimes impossible, and the king wanted an empire that would last. He wanted unity in this. How do you get unity in an empire so big? Well, he, just, he, he lands on religious unity. He would gather the leaders from all over the world that he was in charge of. Rulers great and small, all of them, from every corner of the realm to gather them together to worship this one image that he had set up. And so he invites, if you missed it, the satraps and the prefects and the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces. Did you notice, as I read, how much repetition there is in this particular part of Scripture? It's, it creates an interesting read, doesn't it? Do you wonder why the author would have done such a thing? I might have left a few of those out. I certainly would have left out the second list. Do you know that whole thing is listed in verse 2? And then again, in its entirety in verse 3. What's going on there? Why, why, let's not assume the author's stupid. Why did the author do this? Because it was on purpose. Because as we read it, what happens is, is there's no way to get around it. It begins to sound wooden. It begins to sound mechanical, almost robotic, which is precisely what the author is driving at. There's, there's a woodenness a lack of features to this group of people. They are just simply the faceless masses doing what the king wants them to do. Now, by listing all of these people, we get a sense of just how many there would be. There were masses of them, but by listing them again and again, we kind of get this feel of just wooden and robotic worship. They are commanded to come, and so they come. They're commanded to stand, and so they stand. They are commanded to bow, and so they bow. And they do precisely what the king wants them to do. This is not the picture of worship from the heart. This is, this is the picture of coerced 
worship on the scale of an empire, of a dictator commanding, and of the faithless masses obeying. And the king's word is unchallenged, and he had united his empire, or so he thought. And so we pick up with verse 8. Daniel 3, verse 8. Therefore, at that time, certain Chaldeans came forward and maliciously accused the Jews. They declared to King Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever. You, O king, have made a decree that every man who hears the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music shall fall down and worship the golden image. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. There are certain Jews whom you have appointed over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, these men, O king, pay no attention to you. They do not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. If it sounds like they're being tattletales, they are being tattletales. They, they come before the king and they accuse these men of not worshiping as the king commands. You could almost hear the whine in their voices. You know, king, they're not doing what you said. And their heart is kind of easy to see in this. These guys are interested in their own self-advancement. They want to get to the top of the heap. These three Jewish men are above them on that pile, and so they're going to step on them to get up higher. It's it's obvious to see their heart. But you know, it doesn't matter because their words found their target. And the king was incensed. He was angry because his plan for unity had a, had a flaw in it. So let's read beginning in verse 13. Then Nebuchadnezzar in furious rage commanded that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be brought he brought these men before the king. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said to them, Is it true, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I have set up? Now, if you are ready, when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, to fall down and worship the image that I have made, well and good. But if you do not worship, you shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. And who is the God who will deliver you out of my hand? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar was filled with fury, and the expression on his face was changed against Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He ordered the furnace heated seven times more than it was usually heated, and he ordered some of the mighty men of his army to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and to cast them into the burning, fiery furnace. Then these men were bound in their cloaks, their tunics, their hats, 
and their other garments, and they were thrown into the burning, fiery furnace. Because the king's order was urgent and the furnace overheated, the flame of the fire killed those men who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell bound into the burning, fiery furnace. Can it be true? I can hardly believe this of you guys. I put you in the positions in charge that you are at. But I've heard these rumors from these Chaldeans. Now, I know they're only accusing you out of jealousy. So I'm going to give you another chance to do what you're supposed to do. When you hear the sound of the instruments, bow down and worship. And if not, the furnace awaits. And who? Who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? Who is the God who will deliver you? Did the gods of Tyre and Sidon deliver them? Did the gods of Assyria stop me? Did the God of Jerusalem protect his city? Who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? How must this have sounded to Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? The king was right. He was ultimately powerful. There was none as strong as him on earth, and they were in the center of his kingdom, in his own palace, surrounded by his own guards. They were in his hands. And couldn't they have just worshipped on the outside? Like, make a deal beforehand. Like, hey guys, listen. We're going to bow down, but in our hearts, we're going to know that we're worshiping God, not this idol, right? We can do that, right? So let's, let's, let's go. We'll save our lives so that we can serve God another day. And we're going to know that, that our true worship is reserved for God. Except that they knew their Bible. And they recalled the second of the ten Commandments. Second commandment of the ten prohibits not just the external worship, not just the internal worship of idols, but the external worship of idols as well. It it forbids all worship, as it says, you shall not bow down to it or worship it. Whatever internal battles they face. Those battles were over by the time we meet them here. By the time they're in the presence with the king, their, their answer to him, Oh, king, we have no need to answer you in this matter. We don't even really need to talk about this. Let's just get this over. We ain't doing it. So, whatever you got you to do what you got to do, we know what we're doing. Our God might deliver us, and he might not, and that doesn't matter. We're not doing this. What's amazing is that they had made up their minds with no indication of what God was going to do. They had no idea what God was going to do. We know the end of the story. They did not know the end of the story. And the translation issues around their answer are many. People go back and forth whether they even thought that God had the power to deliver them is in question in the way that they answer the king. 
is he even able to do this? Now, that offends us as believers, right? Because we know our God is able. The question is, is that what he's going to do or not, right? It's likely that they were unconvinced of God's ability. And still they said no. And still they said, we are going to serve our God because he is our God. doesn't matter if our God will rescue us. doesn't matter if our God will reward us. doesn't matter if our God will defend us. doesn't matter if our God will deliver us. He is still our God. And so we will serve him and we will worship no other. Our loyalty to God is not dependent on what God does for us. We fear God because He is God. And we fear Him more than you, King. And so we will serve Him. Friend, this morning, why do you serve God? Why do you serve? Do you... Would you serve God because you think He would give you a better life? Because perhaps He'll give you the spouse that you're hoping for? Perhaps He'll give you kids and you haven't been able to have kids? Or He'll grant that your kids will one day follow after Him? Or would you follow Him for health? Or would you follow Him for happiness? Or would you follow Him for some kind of reward? Friends, none of those will hold. None of those will last. And none of those is actually following Him. To follow him. We follow him because he is God. You want to know why you should serve God? Because he is God and you're not. That's why you should serve God. Because he is creator and you are creature. Because he is worthy of praise and I'm not and you're not. And this is a call to fear the Lord. A call to fear God. That is to give reverence and respect and awe and worship of God because He is Creator, because He is Sovereign, because this is His world, because we are His people. Now the Scriptures, praise God, they give us a lot more reasons to serve God than simply fear of God. But they don't give us any less reason than that. We are called to serve God out of fear, adoration of God, not for what He does for us. So, I wonder even if there are those here that have yet to turn to the Lord. And I could give you all kinds of promises, and they are throughout Scripture of the steadfast love and goodness of God and the eternal rewards that He gives but let me call you this morning. Fear God because He is God. Worship Him because He's worthy of worship. Whether He rewards you or not, whether He rescues you or not, whether He defends you or not, here is the root, here is the nub, here is the basic duty of men and of women. Worship the Lord, for He is God. You may say, Ken, this all is about fearing God, isn't it? Isn't it more to love God than to fear Him? Yes. You may, you may fear God without loving Him. That is possible. But you cannot love Him without fearing Him. 
You must fear him to love him. This is what it looks like because he is God. Well, the king is livid. King is furious and murderous, and he commands that the that the furnace be heated seven times. Now, that number seven is just the biblical number of completion. That is to say, heat it as completely as possible to the point that the furnace itself is near to melting under the heat that it has. So much so that the guards that, that threw the men in themselves died from the heat of the furnace. And so they bind these three men and throw them in. Three men bound. Three men bound. Pick up in verse 24 together. Then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished and rose up in haste. He declared to his counselors, did we not cast three men bound into the fire? They answered and said to the king, true, O king. He answered and said, but I see four men unbound walking in the midst of the fire and they are not hurt and the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. Then Nebuchadnezzar came near to the door of the burning fiery furnace. He declared, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out and come here. Then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out from the fire. And the satraps, the prefects, the governors, the king's counselors gathered together and saw that the fire had not had any power over the bodies of those men. The hair of their heads was not singed, their cloaks were not harmed, and no smell of fire had come upon them. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego who has sent his angel and delivered his servants who trusted in him and set aside the king's command and yielded up their bodies rather than serve and worship any god except their own god. Therefore, I make a decree. Any people, nation, or language that speaks anything against the god of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be torn limb from limb, their houses laid in ruins. For there is no other god who is able to rescue in this way. Then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. Who is the God who is able to deliver you out of my hands? There is no other God who is able to rescue in this way. We are brought towards the edge of the fiery furnace by being actually in the, the eyes of the king. We see what the king is seeing. He, he is mur murderous and angry, and then in an instant, astonished. And he rises up and he, he runs over and he asks those around him because he's not trusting his own eyes, do you see what I'm seeing? Weren't there three of these guys? And didn't we bind them before we put them in? And now there are four, and they are walking about unbound. So he walks over to the 
the mouth, if you will, of the furnace and cries out, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, come out and come here. And out they come. And you remember all the satraps and the governors and the counselors and this and the that and the other guy. They were all there. And they all mob around them to, to look, to behold, to, to touch, to see, to hear them talk, to even smell that there's no evidence of fire about them whatsoever. The fire had no power over their bodies. God had delivered them not by halves or parts, but in whole. And the king marvels. So what's up with that fourth guy in the fire? Who is this fourth individual in the fire? In verse 25, we, we see him through the eyes of the king as one who has the appearance like a son of the gods. And then in verse 28, Nebuchadnezzar again repeats that he had, God had sent his angel and delivered his servant. For 2,000 years, Christians have generally thought that this refers to Christ being in the fire with his people. And I've got no reason to say otherwise. I think this could be Christ. I think it goes a little far to say that we're certain that it is. Looks like a son of the gods and described as an angel. Could be an angel, okay? Could be a pre-incarnate Jesus who came to walk with his people through the fire. I think either of those is a distinct possibility. But to argue about those misses the point. Because here's what we should see. This, this fourth one who joined his people in the fire is meant to point us to Christ. This might, may or may not be the Son of God, but this certainly points us to the Son of God. This is an Old Testament picture of what Christ is going to be and do of who he really is. This, this angel is meant to teach us about Jesus. Consider this angel who walks in the fire with his companions. So does Christ. So did Christ, particularly in his entry into this world, this world of suffering and pain and difficulty and tragedy and inexplicable suffering, he entered into, if you will, the furnace of this world, took on himself human form, being made in the likeness of men, and he entered the furnace. And then look at how the angel delivered the people from the fire, such that the, the the fire had no power over their bodies whatsoever. Christ came to deliver his people from fire as well, but not merely some physical fire that would have lasted for a very brief length of time, but rather from an eternal fire. This points to Christ redeeming us and rec uh, keeping us from the fires of hell. It, it speaks it whispers ahead of the biblical doctrine of hell. A fire which is fueled by our sin and which is kindled by the wrath of God against sin. 
our fuel, our, our, our sin is the fuel. It's, it's our wicked thoughts. It's our sinful deeds. It's the things we should have done that we didn't do and the things that we shouldn't do that we ended up doing. Our sin against God is the fuel of that fire and it is His righteous anger against sin which causes, us, causes it to burn. There is much to be feared about hell. I would, don't think it's too far out on the limb to say it's the least popular biblical doctrine. But doctrines aren't to be judged by their popularity, but by their truthfulness. And this is so clearly taught in Scripture. There is much to be feared about hell. It is a place of suffering. It is an eternal place of suffering. But perhaps the thing that is most fearful, the scariest thing about it, is that we deserve it. God's not wrong. He's right. God is right to have hell as the outcome for sin. And that's terrifying. Praise God for Christ who came. This is no fiction. This is no, oh yeah, you know, that thing, don't, don't, we don't have to think about that. We don't, friend, that was our destiny. Apart from the fourth one in the fire. Apart from Christ coming. This is where we were going. And this physical one that we can talk about is a dim representation of the eternal wrath of God against sin. Jesus talks about this in Matthew chapter 13. We just finished the book of Matthew together, but it's been a while since we were in chapter 13 together. Let me read you these words from Christ about this very thing. He talks about a harvest. He says, Just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so it will be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send His angels and they will gather out of His kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. This is not, it's not my idea to stand up here and to say the fiery furnace was meant to picture something. Jesus takes it Himself as the picture of the eternal destiny of all of those who do not repent for their sins. Let me ask you this morning, have you repented of your sins? Have you repented and turned away from the sins that would, that would be like weights dragging you down to hell? That you cannot escape on your own, but that Christ came, that you could have a way of escape. The older I get, the more I recognize, I guess you might call it the foolishness of being young. That young people really do feel, do you, you remember this if you don't feel it right now, like you're going to live forever. That really is how we're born. We really, it's dumb, but that's how we feel when we're young. And the older we get, the more and more we have to taste and look at little pieces of our own mortality, and we know that life is limited. Friend, cast off the folly of youth for a moment and recognize 
Your days are numbered. My days are numbered. I cannot tell you what day you will stand before the judge. I can tell you you will stand there. And it is the duty of a pastor to get you ready. Friend, be ready for that day. Don't leave here with the folly of youth and think that you will never see that day and that you will never stand before that judge. It might be 40 years. It might be 40 days. It might be 40 minutes. But if not yet, the friend turn to the Lord and repent because our God is to be feared. The New Testament says, don't fear the one who can destroy the body. Fear the one who, having destroyed the body, can cast the soul into hell. But friend, the good news here, and this is a good news passage, we just got to see the bad news part of it first. The good news passage is that there's a fourth one in that furnace. That God's people are, in fact, rescued from that furnace. And that is what Christ came to do. He is way better than the angel here. You know what the angel got to do? He got to go down, like accompany the guys, you know, send them out of the furnace and then disappear back to heaven. Whatever angels do. I don't really know. But he went off and did that next. Another mission, another thing. Christ, not so much. The angel was unsinged. Christ was not unsinged when he entered our fiery furnace. He did not escape with his hair intact as they pulled out his beard. His garments weren't perfection coming out of the furnace because they bartered over and tore his garments. They had, the, the, the fire had no power over their bodies, but it had power over his. And he was a sacrifice consumed on the altar for God's people for our sake the angel survived the furnace but the son did not how good is our god how good is our god he didn't just rescue us by sending an angel to somehow keep us from this eternal inferno because no angel could have but rather at the ultimate price for himself rescued us from this inferno and he didn't need to come into the furnace, right? Who got tied up and thrown in? God's people got tied up and thrown in. That's who got sent to the furnace. One volunteer went in with them, that angel. Well, praise God for one volunteer, friends, who came to earth and suffered in our place. He didn't need to enter the furnace. This is the goodness of God. He didn't need to. He didn't have to. No need of his drove him to do it. The need of ours drove him to do it. He entered the furnace for us. God is good. God is good. God is good. And so now we can see the dual calling of Daniel chapter 3. Serve God. Fear God because he's God. And serve God because he's good. Right? We, we fear him because he's God and we serve him because he's good. Ours is not this. Ours is not the kind of worship that we see that the parody of worship here at the beginning. This hellish worship of compulsion, 
where the king sounds all these things and everybody has to come in and at the sound of this and this and this and this and everybody lines up and oh, okay, we all bow together. You know what it made me think of? There's a horrible place in North Korea where the, where the founders have their massive bronze statues and you cannot enter that place without laying flowers before them and without bowing before them. Wicked, horrible. Friends, the worship of God is worship from the heart because we serve a God who is good. We serve a God who entered the fire on our behalf. Now, i gotta, I got to tell you the obvious here, friends, because preachers are going to mess this one up. Does this mean that God delivers all of His people out of all of their troubles? No, it does not. Does this mean you can just name it and claim it? Whatever fiery furnace you're in, He's going to bring you out of it. No, it does not mean that. What does it mean? It means that our God is God, regardless of what we're walking through. And our God is good, regardless of what we're walking through. And what we may expect, because he has promised it, is that he will be with us in every fire we walk through. We are not alone as we walk through our fiery furnaces. In any trial he doesn't remove, in any difficulty he doesn't take, in any furnace that he doesn't quench, he will be with you. He will be there to sustain you, to strengthen you, to help you, to intercede for you, and even in his own incomprehensible wisdom to take what is evil and turn it for your good. That's the promise of God. Finally, I like to picture what it must have been like to have Nebuchadnezzar call into the furnace. What was it like in there? I mean, they were doing okay. They must have been jazzed. I mean, come on. I mean, seriously. As things, that, it's like the definition of cool. I mean, these guys were cool. <laughs> and then the king calls them out of the furnace. Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego. Come out and come here. Put your name there. Put your name there. Come out and come here. Friend, there's a day coming for each of us when this fiery furnace will be gone. And he will call you out of it. I can't promise you you're going to get out of every little thing along the way. It's, uh, nope. But it will end. And it will end when he calls you out. Whew. And he will call you by name. Come out and come here. And we will come out. And we will stand before the king. And he will make all things right. And what a day that will be. And until that day, he's with us in the furnace. And so church, until that day, fear him because he's God and serve him because he's good. Let's pray. Worship team, come on up.
Lord, I pray for pray for any here that don't know you. That you by your spirit right now would would fall heavy with the fear of God. With an awareness of sin and of mortality and with an awareness of grace as well. Lord, that you would draw people to yourself for the first time. And, and Lord, for those of us that, and it is all of us here, that so frequently go astray, Lord, would you remind us that you are the one to be feared and that you are the one who is good. That you would keep us from wandering from you in that fear of God and keep us running after you in the awareness of your goodness until we get to see you face to face. Until then, Lord, receive our praise now as we sing in Jesus' name.